0: Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? And Father, we just humbly pause and ask now as we continue in our worship of you, we sang, we've prayed Lord, we want this to be an act of worship in your presence in the same way as we submit our heart and soul and mind and spirit to what you would speak to us through your living and powerful word. Lord, we don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man. We want to experience the demonstration of your spirit and powers. he speaks to our hearts as we open the word of God. Prepare us accordingly, Lord, and bless your word. Speak to us now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's say you're doing something in life and perhaps you're putting a lot of effort into it and maybe you're really trying your best to make it work and in the midst of that effort, you still can't help but to ignore the realization that despite your attempts It seems like it's a constant battle no matter how much effort you're putting into it. And then maybe somebody graciously comes along and points out that perhaps the problem is that you're actually not doing the right thing. Or maybe, maybe you're just not going about that thing in the right way. Maybe you're going about something, but you're going about it in the wrong way. And in a sense, by so doing, they sort of expose your error to you. And they kind of bring to your attention the recognition of your error. At that point, I have a choice to make. How am I gonna respond to my own error? Because really, I only have two options at that point. Once it becomes evident that I'm in error, I can pretend that I don't see my error and you can push forward in your own wrongdoing or the only other option is at that point we respond to the awareness of our error by making a proper course correction and adjusting where we're going to the right direction. And I think often that is a process that happens repeatedly in the spiritual life, where. The Holy Spirit, remember Jesus called him the Spirit of Truth, as we saw in our study in the Gospel of John. And the Spirit of Truth, a lot of times, will reveal to us the error that exists in our own lives on occasion. And he'll point out to us this reality that perhaps we're not doing what's right in some way, hoping that conviction will compel us to turn away from our mistake And turn toward the Lord so that our lives can come back into harmony with God's will for us. And as God's people, it is really important that we learn the value of responding appropriately in our lives to the awareness of our own error. When God reveals our error to us, it is vital that we learn how to respond to that properly. And that's really what our text this morning is going to address for us. As James continues with the continuity of what he said in the prior verses, he's going to exhort us to respond properly to error once it comes to our attention. Remember the background of chapter 4 we saw last week is James at this point is warning and he sort of was confronting, if you would, this potential error that we can all slip into of striving if i can for sake of just uh, context sake let me reacquaint you verses one through five look at them with me he said where do wars and fights come from among you do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members you lust and you do not have you murder and covet and cannot obtain you fight and war yet you do not have because you do not ask and you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know with friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, James says, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So James was talking about striving against other people striving with other people at times because really we just want our way and so we'll push and fight and quite frankly sometimes almost become murderous in the way we'll treat other people we'll destroy other lives just to try and get what we want for our own life sometimes and the tragedy is is we're not willing james said to at times just step back on occasion and see if maybe this idea or this desire or this issue that we have Uh, is something that maybe instead we should pause and sincerely ask God, is this really something that he wants for us? Is this really genuinely something that's a part of God's plan for my life? And is this idea really God's idea for me? And then to let God decide that. And let God actually be the one to determine if he wants to do this for me or give that to me in some ways. And then worse, James said as he went on, sometimes he says we start to actually strive directly against God himself, not just with other people. And he talked about how in verse 4, how we can at all times sort of become worldly in a sense and hurtfully ignore and turn away from the Lord really because we're pursuing things that the world is offering to us. Pleasures or opportunities to indulge things of the world or what might be sinful, and we start to really sin against the love of God. And we start to turn away from the Lord so that we can chase after other things. And we're willing at times, tragically, even to, as James kind of describes from God's perspective, almost commit spiritual adultery, is the way God would view it. Because we're giving the love and the devotion and the dedication that really belongs to the Lord to something else or maybe to someone else and in a sense we begin to turn away from the Lord and cheat against the Lord spiritually in some senses when really he's the one who's worthy of our foremost dedication and in so doing he says we we break the heart of the Lord the same pain that's experienced of the betrayal of adultery is the pain that we actually cause to the Lord because he loves us so much And we stir up a jealousy in the heart of the Lord for our affection. Well, because he does love us so much, the good news is, is he doesn't cast us off when we do that. James said there to us so beautifully in verse 6, look at it, he says, yet he always is willing to give, what, more grace. There's always another measure of his grace, like the ocean waves that never cease, that keep coming in, Though the Lord's heart may be hurt by us, he's always willing to continually extend more love and kindness and he keeps being gracious to us and there's another measure of his grace to forgive us once again, to turn us back to him and he explained how that grace can either be resisted by us or it can be received by us dependent upon our heart attitude. That's what he says at the end of verse six as we left off. He said, remember God wants to give more grace, but God resists the proud and he gives his grace to those who are humble. Now, it's that connection point in light of that truth in verse six that's presented. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble that we ask, well, what does that look like practically? In other words, by response, what does that look like? Once our error is exposed, maybe we're being worldly or we're striving against God or we're striving with other people in selfishness or pursuing some worldly sinful thing in a way. How do we cease from being proud and stubborn lest we keep fighting against God and he have to resist us? And how do we instead, which is much better, humble ourselves so the grace of God can flow into our lives? in the way God wants to give it to us. Well, that's what James is going to explain now as he continues here in chapter 4. He says, verse 7, therefore, and again, remember, therefore is a connection term. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what's it there for? It always points back to what was just said. So the idea is therefore, in connection to what has just been said, here's what's important. Therefore, he says, submit, To God. Therefore, in light of potentially getting a little bit worldly, committing spiritual adultery, striving against God, striving against others, lacking prayer and seeking after things selfishly for ourselves, his simple exhortation, look, God's going to oppose the proud. He's going to give grace to the humble. Well, what do we do? He starts out by saying, therefore, in light of that, very simply just says, submit to God. Now, can I just say, that is probably... From a general perspective, probably the wisest and most helpful thing that any human being can do is to obey those three words submit to God. If you fall asleep this morning, I hope you got that part submit to God. Submit to God. The word submit means to surrender yourself to the rule of another. It means stop resisting and yield to the authority of someone else's control. To yield to the authority of one who's greater than you. In fact, the Greek there that's used, it's a military term which meant to get into proper rank. The idea is to submit yourself to the person who is your rightful superior. That is a private should submit to a sergeant because that is their rightful superior. And it's just an appropriate response to submit to one who's our rightful superior. And certainly, there's every proper reason and personal benefit to submitting to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who's kept you breathing since the opening prayer of this morning worship service that you weren't even thinking about breathing, that's kept our heart beating, the one who has a plan and a purpose for our lives that we would submit to God. Oh, how many problems and struggles and difficulties would be resolved in our lives so often in situations if we would just submit to God. Can you imagine? If you could bottle up submit to God, And just take it as a pill. I mean, how many times the problems, the things we're dealing with, what's going on, the issues relationally and circumstantially and spiritually, how many things would be resolved if we would just obey those three simple words, submit to God, to submit to God. Perhaps there is something maybe in your life with this morning that you need to come to terms with in regards to your own will. My question is simply, are you willing to just submit to God? Are you willing to just give it to him, surrender it over? And I know the humanity says, but what about? But but what about them? What, What about? But what about? Just submit to God. Just submit to God. You can't make someone else do that. But we have the personal capacity to do that. To just submit to God. Perhaps this morning, maybe there's an area of disobedience in your life towards the Lord that's going on, and you know in your conscience that the Holy Spirit has been bringing conviction of your guilt and your error in some way personally, and yet maybe you don't want to let go of it. Maybe you want to keep pursuing it and keep having your own way. Can I exhort you for your own benefit to do what you know that you should do, which is to submit to God? To let go of that thing and to let go of the grip that it has on you and to submit to God and, and let me let me say please hear me. You don't even have to figure out how. You don't have to figure out, well, how am I going to untangle from this? How am I going to get out of this sin or this wrong habit or this disobedient pursuit or this thing that I know that I'm doing that the Holy Spirit's been telling me you should not be doing that, you need to put an end to that? You don't have to figure out how to untangle yourself. All you've got to do is just submit to God. If you submit to God, the wonderful thing is this. Once you stop resisting and give God control, He'll direct how to go forward from there. He always does. Now, once we take that first step, which is the first step towards spiritual recovery and progress to obey those three words, submit to God, then going on in verse seven, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So once we submitted to God, yielding to his authority in our life, when that happens, then the supernatural grace of God and the power of his spirit begins to come into our life in a fresh way and begins to enable us by the Spirit's power to then resist the devil. And again, who is the devil? Well, the devil is our spiritual enemy, the enemy of our soul, the enemy of our spiritual life with God, who is always going to continually work repeatedly to keep us from being in right relationship with the Lord. The devil is a proud, selfish rebel at the core of his being, And I assure you, his agenda is always to influence the same pride, the same selfishness, and the same rebellion in my life, in your life. That's what he's seeking to do. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, record to us details about who the devil is and how he fell into his evil condition. The Bible teaches not that he's God's equal. The Bible teaches that the devil is a created being listen hamsters are created beings he's a created being is he powerful absolutely are we any match for him most certainly not but the bible teaches that god created him he's not god's arch enemy and god's equal rival the bible tells us that he was a created angelic being when god created the angelic host he held a high rank among the angelic realm till the time came that pride and sin arose within his heart and caused him to want to seek his own way. Interesting, striving against God. And it caused him to rebel against God, to rebel against God's plan and God's purposes. Isaiah 14 records this. It says, how you are fallen From heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Listen to what it says. For you said in your heart, this was what went on the devil's heart before he fell into his condition of being a fallen angel. He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, the angels of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most, hi these i will statements the devil was self-willed pride arose in his heart and he wanted more than what he was and that's what led that pride to his rebellion and this pride and self-will caused this ultimate rebellion against god that resulted in his fall where he then inspired the bible seems to indicate a third of the angelic realm to follow him which have now become what we call demons or unclean spiritual spirits that the devil led in this rebellion and their agenda is to consistently disrupt god's will and purposes the devil wants to prompt people to live in rebellion to god to live in rebellion to god's ways and god's plans and purposes and he brings temptation and deception to lead us into sin and to keep us in right relationship with god for the person who's unsaved that's not a Christian yet, that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He works powerfully to keep that person in a condition of spiritual blindness to their own spiritual condition where they don't even recognize that they're not right with God. They don't even realize that their sin is something that's making them feel guilty and it's something that God wants to take away from them, that guilt. They don't realize that they can't weigh out their goods and bads and somehow hope to get in. And and the devil keeps them in this condition of spiritual blindness to not see their need of Jesus Christ and his saving power and he deceptively enslaves enslaves them in their spiritual pursuits and and, and, and their, their sinful activities in a way where they may even be religious But they're not in right relationship with God through His Son Jesus Christ. And if the devil can keep such people who are unsaved from submitting to God's salvation through Jesus Christ, He can draw them into hell. And the same way in the life of a believer. We experience the attacks and the resistance of the devil as well. He tries to disrupt the spiritual life of the Christian once we surrender to Jesus' lordship. He attacks us, does he not, in so many ways. Once he knows that we've, in a sense, given our our life to Christ and he's lost our soul, he brings spiritual warfare against our soul to defeat us from living the victorious Christian life that God intends for us to live. And so he wars against us. Ephesians 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So this comes to us, this constant wave of temptation, the devil tempting us to sin and disobey God in our thoughts. He tempts us to disobey God in our actions or to disobey God in how we would speak and to rebel against God's will for our life. He tempts us to believe wrong things, to believe wrong things about God or to believe wrong things about his word. And often the origin of why I become proud or selfish or rebellious against god in any way what causes me to act in those ways james wants us to recognize here in verse 7 the source of that he says is a work and a scheme of the devil your adversary the roaring lion who's seeking to devour people And he wants us to realize that the devil is launching a spiritual assault against our life and he's trying to gain ground. So James says, when we realize this is the origin of our error, we must first, number one, submit to God. We have to surrender over to God. Because why? I can't resist the devil on my own strength. I'm no match for him. Often, Oh, you've got to resist the devil. (laughs) Not until you submit to God, you can't. We have to first submit to God. God, I know I've been wrong, whether the devil's been tempting me and I've been taking his bait. Lord, I need to be in right relationship with you. I'm weak. I need your power and help. Then when we submit to God, we're simply told to do what? Look at the text there, verse 7, to just resist the devil. To resist what he's doing, to resist the way he's trying to work. The word resist means to withstand the force and efforts and effect of something that's coming against us. The idea there is we deal with the assault of the devil by simply holding our ground, standing firm, and just refusing to be overcome by his efforts that he's bringing against us. And we see this in other passages. Again, Peter tells us to be careful and he says, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Peter says, resist him steadfast in the faith. Ephesians 6, which speaks to us of spiritual warfare, says, "Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, listen, to stand against the wiles of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Do you notice the repetition in Bible's instruction about spiritual warfare? The repetition purposely of stand withstand stand it doesn't say go on an aggressive launch Well, i'm gonna take the devil down i'm gonna storm the gates of hell but listen stand and when spiritual warfare comes and temptation rushes in like a flood and the enemy is working and you can sense his opposition and what he's doing the bible says one thing the bible says you just stand you stand in faith You dig in your heels spiritually and you just withstand the assault of the devil. You submit to God. You just withstand and stand your ground spiritually. And the promise, the Bible tells us, is look at it there, verse 7, he will flee from us. He will flee from us. The idea is he'll depart. He'll back off. He'll leave us alone. When he sees you're not taking the bait in his temptation, then he reels it in and he throws his line somewhere else for a while. When he realizes that as a spiritual bully that you're not going to be a pushover and his current efforts aren't succeeding, he goes to look for a better pursuit. When you've submitted to God and he realizes that your father in heaven and your big brother Jesus Christ are with you and you're in right relationship and they got your back, all of a sudden he stands down. And he backs off because he who's in us is greater than he who's in this world. And the devil then begins to, in a sense, separate himself from the persistency of his attack. And oh, how wonderful is it not when we have sensed the pressure and the attack of the devil spiritually, and yet we submit to God and we resist the devil. And then you experience that moment of, can I call it like breakthrough? Where all of a sudden it becomes evident that the enemy has departed and his assault has sort of ended for a while. And there's that spiritual breakthrough. And James says, this is available to us. Well, in the same way we can drive away the presence of the devil, he says we can also cultivate God's presence in our experience. Look, as he goes on, verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So not only should I submit to God's authority, but I should also further seek to experience God's presence in my life. I should pursue to a greater degree the presence of God and deeper fellowship. And let me say this morning, the distance between a person and God is never something measured in feet or in miles. The distance between any person and God is something measured just by meaningful fellowship with God, which causes us to have to ask, how much today are you experiencing the presence of the Lord in your own personal life? How much are you experiencing the presence of the Lord? Because he's always available. He's omnipresent. His presence is always available to us. God desires to be with us. We see that throughout the scripture. God wants to be with us. God wants to be close with us. But is there anything in my life that's causing separation relationally, experientially between me and God? Again, very clearly. For example, is there any unconfessed or undealt with sin in my life? That's an ongoing sinful practice or sinful attitude. And again, maybe it's an attitude of the heart or some activity, and yet I'm not willing yet to repent of it. I'm not willing yet to release that from my life because the Bible teaches sin causes separation. It causes a breach. It breaks fellowship. It causes disruption to harmony and relationship, not only with people, but certainly with God. And when we turn away from that, that then begins to allow us to experience God's presence again in a deeper way. But as long as we continue and if we choose to continue in some sin in our life that we know God's telling us to deal with and we're not willing to do that and we kind of wander, in a sense that's what's happening. We're creating distance between us and God because we're wandering after this other thing that is not in harmony with who God is and so we don't experience His presence as we should maybe because of sin in our life. Sometimes we can as well quench the Spirit of God due to unbelief to unbelief in our heart towards spiritual things we lose sense of the presence of God because sometimes our unbelief or our skepticism about spiritual things gives the indication to the Holy Spirit He's not really welcome and because of unbelief the Holy Spirit begins to get the sense well I'd like to work but you don't seem to believe that I do You don't seem to believe that I can work in that way or that I want to move in that way. And so sometimes unbelief in our hearts can almost make the Lord retract his presence or the manifestation of his power, his work in some ways. And quite frankly, sometimes I know in my life, even just spiritual apathy can cause us to sort of kind of drift from the Lord a little bit and lose sense of his presence and a closeness and meaningful experience remember jesus said in revelation 2 to the christians there he said you have what did he say left your first love a lot of times people misquote that oh you lost your first love you didn't lose it jesus jesus said you've left your first love there was a departure that happened in us, that first love, that you know, enthusiasm, that infatuation of when we were so in love with the Lord and then something happens and we begin to, to move away from it. We begin to leave that first love passion that can happen in our lives. Look, it is never good to be distant from God for any reason and it's always the desire of God to be close with us. We have to always remember that for whatever the cause, that's irrelevant. No, God is always longing and wanting for us to return. He wants us to be close to Him. He's waiting for us to draw near. He'll gladly welcome. And what are some ways practically, as he says here, that we can draw near to God? Well, one is very obvious. If there's sin, we need to deal with that issue because sin separates us from God. So if there's any sin in my life that I need to, in a sense, repent of or turn away that's causing displeasure, I need to resolve that so I then can draw near to God. But there are many practical ways, spiritually, that we can do the same. We can draw near to God, certainly, through prayer. By seeking the Lord. Spending time in the Lord's presence, talking to Him, communing with Him. We can draw near to God by seeking His voice and His direction through His Word by getting alone with the word of God and believing that God wants to talk to us and and saying, Lord, here I am. Just as I read your word, speak to me. Let me hear your voice. And drawing near to God by letting him speak to us through his word. We can draw near to God through times of of worship and singing as we come together collectively. As we give meaningful adoration to the Lord and we just realize we are in his presence and we're rendering worship and in a sense practicing for what we're going to do for all of eternity. You know, if you don't enjoy worshiping in the house of God with the people of God, you might want to question how much you're going to like heaven. Because that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be worshiping and worshiping and worshiping. You know, the Bible says in, uh, to us regarding the throne of God that they say, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. And then they say again, the angels, holy, holy. You think, man, they keep singing the same song. People say that sometimes. Why do we keep singing the same song the church? Well, in heaven, they keep singing the same song once in a while. Because every time they look at God, it's so meaningful. It's so personal. They see something else about God and they go, holy, holy, holy Lord. Oh, And they see some other facet of the amazing person that God is their hearts compelled to worship and one of the most wonderful ways we can draw near to god is through worship by being with his people worshiping jesus said when two or three gather in my name what do He say i'm there in the midst i'm there in the midst even two people get together start praying worship and talking about the lord jesus says i show up to those times i want to hang out when people are seeking me and the presence of the Lord available to us in those ways through acts of obedience so many ways the glorious promise again when we draw near to God look what it says He'll draw near to us that's His promise to us it doesn't say if you draw near to God He might if He has time draw near to you it doesn't say that it says if you draw near to God however you do He will draw near to you God will never decline your intention to get closer to Him He will never turn away your intention. He'll never pull back in disinterest like, "Mm, I mean, I realize that, but I mean, I'd really go hang out with this person. God's never going to do that. God wants meaningful, close, intimate fellowship. In a sense, you could say you and I can be as close to God as we want to be. Because as we draw near to God he draws near to us that is he reciprocates he responds by offering more of himself to us our advances relationally is something that he gladly welcomes he embraces it and he responds to us and he draws us closer and he lets us experience his presence in a deeper and more meaningful way again can I say how awesome is it not that experience spiritually I hope to God I hope to God that you can read that and say, yes, I've experienced that. When I've drawn near to the Lord, and, and in the midst of drawing near the Lord, I just sensed His presence. I sensed the reality of God. I've been in the midst of a room worshiping with people, and, and there's just a sense of that there is, there is an unseen guest among us. The presence of the living God is with us. Or where you're just alone with the Lord and you're seeking the Lord and he lets you sense his presence in this deep way. Well, whenever we sense his presence, it's wonderful, but it also does something, and that's this. When we draw closer to God, who is light, guess what happens? The light is exposed upon our hearts. And we then see things and become more aware of any sin that may be in our own life. That's why I believe James goes on to say, verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded see as I draw close to God who is light he then lovingly shines his light into my life and some things start to get exposed in my life it brings to light things about me I begin to see maybe sin that I'm guilty of or perhaps areas where I've been double-minded that is I'm not making a a firm decision to just commit to maybe trust or obey the Lord as I should but I'm just I'm kind of always going back and forth and wavering like a double-minded person and i'm vacillating and when that happens i need to be willing to repent of those errors and, and and as god reveals them if my hands are engaged in some practice of sin and god reveals that then i i need to cleanse my hands of that i need to let go of that if my heart in a sense or my mind is kind of been marked by wavering and a lack of commitment to the lord i need to ask god to purge that from my life you know, these terms that are used here in verse 8, washing and cleansing and purifying ourselves, they speak of a process of removing what's defiled of us. We might better use the term, the picture there is simply repentance. Repentance, which means to change directions, to have a change of mind which leads to a change of behavior. And what James is trying to say here is at times we need to turn away from actions and attitudes we see in our life as a result of drawing near to God. If there's actions and attitudes that aren't pleasing to God, we need to be willing to, to turn away from those things, to cleanse our lives, to forsake the error of our ways. Isaiah 1.16 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, says the Lord. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. And the wonderful thing is this, when we confess and when we repent, there's a spiritual cleansing of our soul the Lord offers us. Because 1 John 1, nine says what? If we confess our sins, the word confess means to just say the same thing. It means to stop making excuses and say, yes, Lord, it's just sin. It's just sin. No justification, no reasoning, ownership. It's wrong, Lord. You say it's wrong, it's wrong. If we confess our sins, He's what? Faithful and just to forgive us. And if that weren't wonderful enough, what does it then say? cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he has a faithful and just basis to do that because of what Jesus did for us he can always forgive and he can always cleanse well James then goes on to address the subject of our sin when it's present in our life and he's quite practical and straightforward as we've seen verse 9 he says lament and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy To gloom. So James here seeks to deal with any attitude that will be, we could say, kinda carefree towards sin that might be evident and at times present in our lives. Sometimes we can make the mistake, is it not true? Where we kinda almost act like sin's kind of a trivial thing. And we get a little casual with this amazing grace of God that He's offered to us. And we start to see treat sin or disobedience, maybe kinda we dismiss it like it's no big deal. You know, I mean it's that's, that's just kind of my struggle, just kind of my struggle i mean and 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 God understands I mean it's just kind of my struggle, and he always forgives anyway, and we almost make light of sin as if it's no big issue. I would say, given what it did to Jesus Christ, sin's a pretty big issue because it caused a lot of pain to God, it caused a lot of sacrifice on the part of Jesus, and sometimes as God's people we can almost be guilty of behaving. Is it not true? Spiritual things and almost like like a joking matter sometimes. Or maybe we really sense in our time alone with the Lord or maybe in a meeting like this, we really sense the conviction of the Spirit of God and we powerfully sense the conviction of the Spirit of God going on in our life and then just a few minutes later we blow it off and we just start joking around with a bunch of other people as if nothing ever happened. And we just dismiss the seriousness of what God may be trying to do. And James is saying when we do that, I sense James saying here in verse 9, man, that's a tragedy James is saying. To have that trivial attitude, we should take seriously sin in our lives and it should grieve us like it grieves God. We should be grieved when we see our selfishness or the pride that we still have. Or, or our potential to still rebel against God should we not James says here verse 9 lament and mourn and weep over our own selfishness and pride and the things that we still see in our hearts shouldn't we be sorrowing over that the Bible challenges here any joking attitude to regards, regards to the seriousness of turning from sin and honoring God or or maybe even perhaps rebuking the heart that would be in a condition where they're acting like everything's well how you doing? I'm doing great brother doing great Yeah, I look at pornography three times a week, but I'm doing great, brother. No, you're not. No, you're not. And James is saying here, what are we doing joking around, acting like everything's light and wonderful if there's some glaring wrongdoing going on in our life? He said, we shouldn't be doing that. He says, we need a heart check, a reality check. I almost sense his spiritual rebuke saying how dare us as Christians act so irreverently towards our Father and toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He says here in verse 9, instead, James would say, you need to, look what he says, you need to let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Good question this morning to evaluate my heart. How sad am I really about the times when I see sin exposed in my life? Does it really bother me? Am I still sensitive to it before God? When I fail, do I actually have a broken heart and want to see that resolved? Well, James says, verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Again, rather than forcing the Lord to have to humble me due to my pride, and I have found he gladly will at times if I don't, (laughs) rather than force the Lord to have to humble me due to my own pride, The Bible instructs us to wisely humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. To take the initiative. Why? Because if we humble ourselves, verse 6 said, then God will be gracious to us as he wants to. He wants to be gracious to us in our lives. So often the mother of all of the other sins in our lives, is it not? What gives birth to so many sins in my life? Pride. Pride is like the mother of all sins, man. And the reason why is because pride is that selfish sense of entitlement that makes us think we deserve to get to do what we want to do or act how we want to act or say what we want to say. And, and it's pride that so often is this destructive thing that misleads and misguides us. And sadly, often pride is what holds us back and keeps us kind of in a, a lower status and experience than what God would really be intending for us. Because we read earlier that God opposes or resists the proud. He simply cannot bring us into higher things that He actually desires for us. So the Bible's instruction in verse 10 then is to take initiative to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, to turn from our pride and repentance and to seek humility in our lives to realize how great the Lord is and how lowly I am in comparison to Him. To seek in ways in my life to endeavor to have a more lowly, proper view of myself not be seeking great things for myself or being my greatest salesman in conversations or in some ways resisting when maybe there's some lower road or lower task or more humble activity that God would want me to be involved in or he would want me to do and not because everyone else is watching because I'm doing it in the sight of the Lord. And I'm willing to do that humble or lowly thing because it's in the sight of the Lord that I want to do that, accepting maybe a low road and and just letting this process happen in our lives where God dethrones my pride and he continues to seek to try and cultivate humility in my attitude to a greater degree. And again, look at the promise there, verse 10. When the Lord sees us humbling ourselves, He honors and rewards that. He says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And what does it say? He will promise, lift you up. He'll lift you up, raise you up, whether it's your attitude or some opportunity, God will bring elevation. In fact, one man said this. He said, humility is God's elevator. I like that. Humility is God's elevator. Is that not so true in so many situations? I remember when my wife and I were, Pastor in Calvary Chapel back in York, and one of the dear saintly ladies that kind of became like a spiritual mother and a, and a grandmom to us. I forget how we got in the conversation one time. We were talking about uh, uh, you know discrepancies between people, and she said this. She said, "You can always tell who the most spiritually mature person is because they're the first one to eat a piece of humble pie." And I thought, man, that is good. That should have been in the Proverbs or something. I mean, it's good. Because when we humble ourselves, we then give God a chance to flood his grace in our life. So if you've sinned, when I fail, the Bible says just humble yourself. Just humble yourself in the sight of the Lord when you've sinned. And in time, the Lord will do something wonderful. He'll lift you out of the pit you created for yourself. And in time, if you just humble yourself, he will lift you back up and raise you back up once again because he lifts up those who humble themselves. And in life, we don't have to try and lift ourselves up and seek greater things. Jesus said, everyone who, what? Exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this beautiful promise of the Lord given to us to seek humility, to humble ourselves so that the Lord can do what he wants to do, which is be gracious to us and lift us up. James then concludes in verse 11 and 12, saying, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're now a doer of the law, he says, not a doer of the law, but a judge. Therefore, there's one lawgiver who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? So he cautions here, against the mistake and the deception of speaking evil about other people. Often when we, listen, often when we are not in right relationship with the Lord, one of the very clear symptomatic effects is we develop a critical attitude towards other people. Because as we are quenching the Holy Spirit's work in our life, the love of God is not flowing through us properly And as a result of that, we become very judgmental and hypercritical towards others. And let me say this. Oftentimes, criticism towards other people is a coping mechanism to try and make yourself feel better. Because if you can continue to identify the errors and the wrongs in someone else and then enjoy pointing them out, talking to other people about it, you're sort of trying to pacify your own conscience about the mistakes you know exist in your own life so many times. And we have to be very careful of it. So the direct command there in verse 11, do not speak evil of one another. Then he adds brethren. That actually means Christians. Brethren. That's a spiritual family term. And he's saying here, as the family of God, how we speak about one another. Listen, the world's harsh enough on us, gang, is they not? So he says, don't be speaking evil of one another, judgmentally using criticism towards other people, the gospel gossip chains, that's often what prayer chains become. Don't slander people, he says, with degrading and insulting language. He's saying, be careful of this negative, hurtful talk that at times we can slip into where we just begin to always speak judgmentally in front of others about people. Because James says, when we start to become judgmental, and we speak evil of others, he says, what we are often doing is starting to criticize the law of God, he says, verse 11, we're criticizing and judging the law of God itself in this way. We're basically indicating that the law is not able to do its job. So we got to help God out because his law ain't working. His law can't convince them that they're wrong. His law can't point out to them that maybe they should change something. That's what we're here for. We're here to do God's job. And all of a sudden, we somehow act as if we're not guilty of violating the law ourselves, or we're not accountable. And the idea is we begin to act like we're not lawbreakers, James says, but like we're actually law givers. Which means then if we're the law givers, we have the right to decide who's right and wrong, and what have we just done? We've elevated ourselves above the law. So that's why James says there, now you're not a doer of the law, but now you're a judge. Now you're the judge? And what we've then done is we've, in a sense, elevated ourselves to God's place. That's why James says, hey, reminder, verse 12, there's one lawgiver. That's God. And he's able to clearly distinguish all by himself, he's fully able, as the one who gave his law, to best distinguish who should be spared and pardoned in their actions, and who is guilty and needs to be dealt with or punished. Again, the rebuke of the Holy Spirit, which is often... One of the most overlooked areas, he says, verse twelve: Who are you to judge another? Let me just say something, and I mean this with all sincerity. My heart. I think, quite frankly, this is probably one of the most common overlooked sins among us as Christians, because we very so. I, I just have discernment. I'm just sharing a prayer request. I just know what the Word of God says. I'm just righteous. I'm just spiritual. And so all of a sudden, this very commonly overlooked sin begins to develop. And he says, who are you to judge another? Now listen, all things in balance here. Does Jesus say we should inspect fruit? Yes. And we can expect the fruit in the life of a person. If something is clearly happening in somebody's life that's a violation of the written scripture, can we address that wrong? Yes, of course. All things in balance. Don't misinterpret what the Bible says in its context however that being said do I have the right to be judgmental of someone just because they're different in how they do something how they operate their family how they handle certain areas of convictions that are gray areas in their life or what they do in this area or that area because they go about something a little bit different listen if they're not violating scripture who am I to judge another We have to be careful. We have to be careful because sometimes we let our convictions make us think that these are commandments in the scripture. And we need to be very, very cautious in this area. I don't have the right to judge somebody's motive, why they did something, or to be judgmental. If perhaps, again, there are things in my own life. And I bring this to your attention because perhaps recently, maybe you've been rather critical towards someone in your life. Maybe there's a particular person you've been rather critical of and maybe you've been a bit too judgmental and God's rebuke may be to you to say perhaps part of the problem actually has something to do with your own heart. And maybe they are justifiably a little bit off in this area but perhaps God would say maybe part of the problem too is your own heart to some degree. I would say this this morning. At the end of the day, I'm not accountable for what another person does or doesn't do right or wrong. What I am accountable before before God is what I do. And I'll tell you this, that's enough to keep me busy. That is plenty enough to keep me busy. Let's focus less on the error of others and more on responding to our own errors. Amen? Let's stand together.